Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. The Guardian. Hello and welcome to The Guardian Books Podcast. I'm Richard Lee. And I'm Sean Kane. This week, we hear from Jason Reynolds, an African-American author whose experience of never seeing himself on the page made him commit to making sure no other kids had to go through the same thing. No book ever mentioned our music, our problems, our textures, our language, the way we walked and talked. You never saw your community in any story, especially in school. But first, this year marks the centenary of the birth of J.D. Salinger, Last week, there was a tantalising glimpse into the treasure trove of manuscripts held by his family since he stopped publishing in 1965. So, Sean, how did this come about? So, basically, everyone knows that J.D. Salinger is sort of kind of regarded as a bit of a mystery and unfairly perhaps categorised as a quote-unquote recluse. An infamous recluse. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Someone that wrote a piece for The Guardian about sort of the idea of the literary recluse because it is sort of a romanticised idea. So people like Thomas Pynchon and Harper Lee and Thomas Harris, they, they basically said recluse is kind of a code for reluctant to give interviews and yeah. successful enough not to need to. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much is... <laughs> famous enough you don't need to anymore. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, so, yeah, J.D. Salinger basically... Most famous for Catcher in the Rye, which published in 1951 and became a massive success and then published other things around the place. But he wasn't sort of incredibly prolific or anything. And a lot of the stories are revolving around some uh, sort of short story collections and novellas and even pieces in The New Yorker. He's sort of an incredibly hard man to edit. And uh, I was watching a documentary recently where they were talking about there was one guy that talked about putting in one comma an extra comma into one story and how mad he got. Um, and another guy who was really good friends with him and then he, he promised that nothing would be changed in this story and then he was paying so much attention to the story he didn't pay attention to the name of the story and uh, someone on, I think it was Cosmopolitan at the time, changed the title of the story and he never spoke to him again. Because um, so, uh, as you say, there was only one novel and most of it was, was stories that he published in the New Yorker. Yeah, so uh, there was sort of lots of lots of books have kind of been made out of things that are perhaps that he never really intended to be books and there were a couple of legal challenges that he made to certain editions of books that he just didn't want yeah, out disavowed there. all his early stories didn't want them published again yeah did he? <laughs> so because of that because he's sort of got this one book that sort of looms over everything else um like people love franny and zooey but it's really at heart a combination of a short story and then a novella that's been mashed together so th- there's a sort of a lot of love for him but really a uh, catcher in the rise the thing that looms over it and so because it was so big it's the sort of same thing with Harper Lee why was there only one book why don't we get more books and I suppose because it, it's really it's a really interesting relationship I think that authors have with readers that there is this sort of psychological connection that if you feel recognized in a book often the fans are very ardent and I think this is sort of true for all sorts of creativity whether you're an actor or a filmmaker or whatever and so J.D. Salinger had this really interesting thing where he had really ardent fans to the point that they'd come and turn up at his house and send him letters and fan mail and he just sort of 
hid away from quite a lot of it. Not all of it, but quite a lot of it. It's almost as if readers, as if we feel authors owe us something. Yeah, a little bit. And I suppose it's sort of that, I think a, a lot of maybe journalists over the years viewed it as their challenge to try and get details out of him. So basically, in 2013, there was this sort of big headline making uh, news that a documentary had been made about J.D. Salinger called Salinger and one of the filmmakers that worked on it was also making a biography to go along with the film and as part of their promotional work for this they were announced to the world that they had found out that there were five works that were going to be published at some point between 2015 and 2020 that we had never seen before that there hadn't been any reference to publicly that had never been acknowledged as existing by his family or the estate and that was that and that was all made and then the family refused to comment on this at all and they never really confirmed or denied it they just absolutely did not respond to it whatsoever and then this week in the Guardian Review, we have a interview with Matt Salinger, who is his son, who is sort of taking care of uh, his father's estate with his mother. And turns out there are several Salinger works that are coming. He's actually finally confirmed that, yes, he is working on it and they will be coming. I don't think it's going to necessarily fit into the... 2015-2020 time frame that the filmmakers were suggesting um, a few years ago. He's saying hopefully in the next decade and he says that in a very, that's the absolute worst case scenario, it's going to take a decade to get them all out there. But he's sort of said that it's quite fragmentary a lot of the things that his father wrote that have been left. He was prolific, it sort of turns out he was very prolific, but he wasn't necessarily a writer that was dedicated to finishing things in a way that they could later be published. So and that's he, basically the situation. It's back in 1974 in his final interview he said that he loved writing, but he liked the pleasure of writing for himself. Maybe yeah. that's what he was doing all those years. He was sort of writing, he wrote a lot of letters and if you um, read the interview with Matt Salinger, there's little snippets of letters that Matt showed to our interviewer Lydia Haas and they're quite funny and revealing and it's kind of weird for me to read him saying swear words <laughs> as opposed to just goddamn which he, all of his characters say goddamn all a lot. the time yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah it's 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 really interesting and it, it'll be it'll be interesting to see what form this takes I guess there will probably be short stories there have been several instances where short stories have emerged um, over the years but the Salinger estate lawyers have been pretty on it and have taken them down. So uh, three stories turned up online a couple of years ago and then they were immediately taken down. Not before, you know, every literary journalist had written a piece <laughs> about whether they were good or not. But again, those were early <laughs> stories rather than, rather than yeah, these which appear exactly. to be kind of late, late work. So how excited are you, Sean, about the idea of more Salinger? Well, yeah, I, I actually am. And um, part of me, I, I quite like the mystery of him. So perhaps I, I sort of have vague pangs of worry about a sort of Harperley situation coming where we get something that clearly wasn't intended to be published and isn't particularly interesting or adding to an existing conversation um, like Ghost Set a Watchman. I just sort of thought that we didn't need that. Actually, we would have been better having that whole work. But in a purely selfish way, <laughs> I've always been really intrigued by Salinger's wartime experiences. Because it was clearly like a very formative time for him and it clearly had a huge impact on his life. Yeah, he saw um, a lot of heavy fighting, didn't he? Yes, yeah. So um, he basically was part of the American forces that liberated Paris. And so he saw a lot. And he actually lived there for a time and also uh, 
uh, post-war became a detective that was basically helping denazify Europe. That just sounds so interesting to me. As soon as I heard that, I was like, oh, my God, I want to read that book. But <laughs> I, I think the, the Salinger estate might be onto anyone that tries to novelize that part of his life. Um, but uh, one of the works that the 2013 documentary referred to was a possible look at his marriage because uh, he actually married a, a Nazi collaborator for a very brief time. And one of the stories was purportedly about that marriage. So it would be interesting to read that story, which would be about that period of time. Yeah, though Matt Paul slightly cold water on the idea right about that first marriage. <laughs> yeah so I, I don't know whether any of the works that are referred to in the 2013 documentary are the works that his son is now saying exists but at least basically the big news is that Matt Salinger has confirmed that there is more work and it is going to be published and that's quite exciting I think. I guess one of the things about the work that's been written over the course of many years between, between 1965 when he stopped publishing and 2010 when he died and, and the present moment is I guess it might read a little strangely. Yes, well, yeah, I wonder whether um, how much of it ages well. I mean, the whole thing that with Holden in particular as a character, I suppose the reason why it has remained such a classic is that he's captured something about the sort of grandiose moping that a teenager is capable of and is always going to be capable of it is timeless sort of yeah thing. almost before the teenager existed as a concept <laughs> there he was moping away yeah but I suppose one interesting element about Salinger and this is something that I think perhaps needs to be acknowledged with a lot of writers and it's something that doesn't necessarily emerge in his writing but there is a certain trouble troubling gender politics in his life particularly uh, recently in the wake of the Me Too movement, uh, there was a woman called Joyce Maynard who basically she was 18 and she had a essay published in the New York Times along with a photograph of herself. And uh, Salinger, who was 53, wrote to her and basically invited her to come live with him, which seems really... <laughs> dramatic but yeah, it she, seems really odd now these days that a 53 year old man would yeah. write to a, a, a young woman and say come and live with me well it's so interesting and it's, it's a sort of thing that I, I sort of wonder whether it was more normal at the time to have such strange age gaps because to me that sort of immediately suggests an inherent power imbalance but maybe at the time it was slightly different actually an interesting thing when sort of reading up for Salinger today I didn't realize but one of his first girlfriends well, a woman that he was really interested in and really wanted to marry her name was Una O'Neill daughter of Eugene O'Neill and she ended up marrying Charlie Chaplin when she was 18 and Charlie Chaplin was 54 so actually we've got another 18 year old with a 53 year old yeah, and, um, and this was treated as perfectly normal well, yeah, to I the extent of... to which when Joyce Maynard published a memoir about it in 1998 it was her who was seen as abusing yeah, the trust exactly so uh, by that point in the 90s he sort of had built up his reputation as being a very private man and so the fact that she'd written this book sort of seemed very scandalous to everyone else and so I think people didn't necessarily read her memoir with the attention it deserved which included a lot of sort of allegations of very hurtful and sad behavior so she wrote a really good piece for the New York Times about basically dealing with the reception of her memoir and basically asking everyone to go back and reappraise it and it is uncomfortable reading and there have been recently I mean there's always been pieces about Hemingway being a bit of a cad and there was recently also um, some allegations made about John Steinbeck so I don't know it's always that thing that we perhaps have to just be careful about how much we mythologize 
authors and perhaps we can certainly enjoy the work and respect the work but there does have to be a I think a healthy amount of criticism for the way they live and how they treat other human beings and you know regardless of whether they're a genius author I think you know there has to be a certain amount of kindness for other people but I guess in the end it all comes down to the text and Mm. we're going to have to wait to see what that's like when it's eventually published I guess that's that's not a problem we're going to have with Jason Reynolds who we'll be hearing from after after this (laughs) Today in Focus is a new Guardian podcast that brings you closer to our journalism by getting behind the news every weekday. You'll join me, Anushka Astana, talking to people at the centre of the big stories impacting our world. We'll use personal perspectives and expert analysis to put you at the heart of what matters. Listen to Today in Focus and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you choose to listen. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. From a very young age, Jason Reynolds was fascinated by the rhythm and power of language. An early love for rap artists like Queen Latifah transformed into an interest in poetry in his teens, though he'd only read his first novel cover to cover when he was 17. While studying and reading literature in New York, he began to notice a lack of books about black children. And since his first book, All American Boys, he's committed to writing about children from minority backgrounds. His latest, Ghost, the first in a series called Run, follows a bright and impulsive African-American boy called Ghost, who finds he has a talent on a local track team. Sean, what got you first interested in Jason Reynolds? So first time I actually encountered Jason Reynolds was, weirdly, not through a book. Someone had recommended his book Long Way Down to me, but when they were recommending it, they sent me a YouTube link to an interview he had done, and it was with Gail King in the States, mm-hmm. who's... Uh, somewhat affiliated with Oprah and that circle. And so there was this sort of young author sitting on the couch on a sort of a primetime show on CBS getting interviewed. And um, just the confidence with which he was speaking and the sort of fervor that he was speaking with about just children's literature in general, but also representation and the power of, of language just really took me. And so I watched it's, it's this... It's this project about about reflecting those voices. Yes, and he's always had such an interesting... I mean, he has such an interesting way into literature in that it wasn't the traditional, you know, being read to as a kid and then sort of going off and finding your own way through literature. It was sort of a very sudden but very powerful drop that he, he had into literature. But he was sort of coming already with this sort of beautiful lyricism that was sort of born from all the music that he loved and the poetry that he was writing um, since he was a teenager. And he's always sort of been oriented towards writing for children, although he never really deliberately set out to do that. And I always find that really interesting because he now clearly re- 
recognises that he has a sort of obligation in some ways to do this. And actually, um, you'll hear in a minute in the interview him talking about writing Spider-Man, that he's possibly like the only guy that doesn't want to write Spider-Man. <laughs> and then <laughs> when he is told that it's actually um, the Miles Morales version of Spider-Man, so the Afro-Latino iteration of Spider-Man, he realises he has a really cool opportunity. And so then he, he, he wants to do it then. But he's just such an interesting man and just a very powerful speaker. So I actually came to him after reading Long Way Down, uh, which is a novel and verse, really loving it. But really, genuinely, uh, he's just a very interesting man to talk to. So even though he's done loads of interviews and he's told this story thousands of times, I asked him to start by sort of talking about how he began writing. I mean, you know, the story is a simple story of a young man who grew up in a community at a time when books, unfortunately, especially books for children, weren't necessarily books that had anything to do with his life. You know, I I was a kid who who grew up with, like, block parties and sunflower seeds and, like, hot sausages and pig feet in the jar and the liquor store, (laughs) gamblers, lottery players, you know, old men with cigarettes tucked behind their ears and old women with saggy stockings and white shoes and Kool-Aid, ramen noodles, and this is stuff. These are very American things, but more so American working class things. Mm -hmm. This is sort of black America in the 1980s, right? This is also the time when there was a crack epidemic sort of taking over our communities. You had the beginning of what we now know as HIV and AIDS, and then you had the direct response to those things uh, through art, uh, which for us was hip-hop music. There were no books that outlined any of those things. No book ever mentioned our music, our problems, our textures, our language, the way we walked and talked. You never saw your community in any story, especially in school. We were asked to read books from the 1970s and 1960s and the 1950s, books from over here, right, mm-hmm. that obviously were called the, the great literary classics um, that we had to read in America, <laughs> which is a whole other conversation. And so... There's a gap from 1980 to around 1999 of books that are basically not being written, that mm. do not exist, like that are not being written about kids who are growing up during the 80s and 90s. There was nothing for us. An entire generation, not mm. just me, a whole generation of kids growing up like I was growing up had nothing to read. So because of that, I read nothing and found myself reading rap lyrics as a young person because that music um, was like medicine for a lot. It saved my life. Mm. And people hated it, and it made people uncomfortable, and they tried to ban it. But for those of us who connected to it, it it was it was a lifeline for us. And so I started to read rap lyrics, and it was in the reading of those rap lyrics that I that I discovered poetry, which is funny, by the way, because people are still arguing with me about whether or not rap is poetry, <laughs> uh, which well, I think is which I think is a little absurd. Yeah, uh, I mean, I was going to actually bring that up because I think. This is something that we've seen that there is, I think, still this strange, it almost feels too simplistic to say snobbery, but this divide of what could be classified as high culture and low culture, that somehow lyrics, if if rap lyrics are paired with music, somehow it divorces them from, I don't know, the cleanness of poetry written on a page. But to me, it seems that there is an obvious link between the two. But is it just snobbery, do you think? Or? It is. Yeah. I think it's snobbery. I think it's classism. I think it's racism. I think it's lots of things, right? I think at the end of the day, the way that we talk about rap music and its disconnect from being poetry, we never speak that way about Bob Dylan. Mm. We never speak that way about songs like Stagger Lee that is read and then sang. We never speak that way about A Boy Named Sue, right? Mm. Uh, right, which was written by Shel Silverstein, a poet, right? Like, And so I... I 
it's hard for me to not believe that this has something to do with the people who are making these poems, right? And and, and I and I wish it didn't. Ha- I wish I could think otherwise, but I just don't have uh, any reason to think otherwise. And, and especially since this music is so is so word heavy. Yeah, you would think there would be an obvious connection. And furthermore, I, I don't think that people really understand that like these these poems, these rappers who have written these poems. I mean, there are rappers who are in the Norton anthology. Right, they're, they're, Nas has his own scholarship at Harvard University, right? Like it, these are not sort of these, you know, fly by night, willy nilly writers writing anything. They were taking rhyme scheme and meter and syntax and rhythm and all the things that poets take seriously. Seriously, the stakes. What are the stakes of the poem? Right, all those things are the same thing that they do. It's no different. Mm. You may not have read your first book, Two Seventeen, but it sort of feels like you had sort of a hell of a, a poetic education then before you you read that book, which I'd actually never heard of before. But um, it, Richard Wright's memoir, mm. um, Black Boy. Mm. What was it about that book that made you go, oh wait, like reading is for me? It, you know what? Uh, to be honest, it was nothing about the book itself. It was everything about the way the book was structured. And so what Richard Wright understood. So on, on the second page of Black Boy, the Richard, young Richard burns his mother's house down. That's all. Right. So instead of you giving me 50 pages of exposition, right, instead of you building a world for me, you drop me right in the middle of the conflict. Right. He literally took the second. My, my uncle used to tell me that the best books are the ones that begin and shots ring out. And what he was really trying to say was the best books are the ones that take that waste no time hooking the reader. And that's what Richard Wright did for me. And it was the first time I ever experienced that. Right. I opened it up. I read page one. And on page two, here he is setting the curtains on fire. And I'm like, this is, this is very, di- this is it, right? <laughs> I just didn't want to be bored. Yeah. I just needed something, not just for me to bite down on, but something to bite down on me. And that's what the book did. Well, in, in Long Way Down, there's um, a collection of author notes at the back of it. And in it, you're sort of saying that you recognize that young people, if they don't read, particularly young boys, it's not necessarily a problem of theirs. It's that they're bored, that, that they find the book boring, so they don't finish it or they you know, they think reading generally is boring and so they don't do it. And so you have this line where you said, so here's what I plan to do, not write boring books. Mm. And you can sort of see it in the way that you write, really, in terms of the pacing and in terms of the the action and where your stories begin. It's, there's always a hook in there, which you're sort of saying it, it comes from that first experience you had with Richard Wright. Absolutely. I mean, it comes from Richard Wright. It comes from the fact that rap songs are three minutes. <laughs> Right, like yeah. you, this is it. You get a, you get a moment to convince me that you're talented enough for me to stay here and listen to the next song. Mm-hmm. You get a, this. This is your single. The first three pages of a book. That's the single of the book, right? And if I like your single, then I listen to the album. So, so how do you go then from someone that doesn't really read very much to going to someone who's writing books for other people to read? Mm. I mean, I think, you know, a few things happen. Number one, once you complete one book, there's, there's a euphoria, right? There's something that happens to you. It's like any other drug where suddenly you become addicted to the feeling of completion. Then you're willing to sort of dive into any book because you'll do anything to feel the feeling of turning the final page again. And so I went on a rampage, right? And I was like, <laughs> all right, that's it. I'm, I'm, I, I need to feel this over and over and over, which, by the way, is a healthy thing for young people to feel like they're completing something, mm-hmm. finishing something. So I, I go on this thing where I'm, I'm reading and I'm writing, and now I'm writing all these poems, and I'm reading all these books, and I'm learning all this stuff about the tradition from which I've come. And I'm like, oh, there's so much work to be done. There's so much work to be done. I get signed when I'm 21. Right, so I've been around for a long time, <laughs> a long run, and uh, I get signed when I'm 21. 
uh, I go through the process of publishing, and when they when they published the book that I had written with my co a co-writer of mine, my buddy, they categorized it as young adult, which mm. I did not know. Mm. Right, it wasn't a thing that I knew about. Had no idea it was a category at all. The book comes out, it flops, and then six years later, seven years later, I get back into the industry. Um, the only people I knew to call when I was getting back in the industry were people in the young adult arena mm. because my editors and agent and everybody back then worked in that in that world. So I was sort of like thrust into a space that I didn't know existed. And then when I got there, I realized there are still millions of kids growing up the exact way I did, mm. feeling totally disconnected from literature. Right. There are teachers all over America and all over the world who are trying to figure out creative ways to to engage and to get young people to to buy into reading. Um, but their argument that the students argument is the same argument that I had as a young person. Why would I ever try to build a relationship with a thing that clearly does not want a relationship with me? based on what I'm reading in the books, right? Mm -hmm. And so my job going forward, like that was it. It was kind of like, oh, so now I realize I have an opportunity. I have an opportunity to move the needle. I have an opportunity to make it right, right? Or at least to help make it right, to put a brick in that wall. Um, Let me figure out a way to tell honest stories about young people um, and give them something that they can see themselves in so that at least they know that they're valued um, and that their lives matter. Mm-hmm. That's really, you, you ask any kid in the world what they really want from adults, and all they're going to say is honesty. Yeah. Just want an adult to talk to me like a human being and be honest. And that's all I'm trying. I ain't trying to teach them nothing. I'm not trying to lean on them. I'm not trying to preach to them. I'm not trying to chastise them. All I want to do is bear witness to their lives. All I want to do is write thank you letters. Right? These are love notes. Um, and, and, they, and the only way that we can let, people, let young people know that we love them is if we listen and if we see them. In your books, in both Long Way Down and uh, Ghost, which is the first in your Run series, which is published in the UK in February 2019, both Will and Ghost in this Run series, what struck me with both of them, and, and I actually realised that I, I feel like I, I was sort of someone that grew up with somewhat of a young adult mm. industry there Mm. and in a lot of the books that I read which were a lot of it was sort of classic children's literature so you're thinking like your Enid Blyton's and your sort of really old school stuff but then also your Harry Potter's and that sort of thing that I didn't really often see angry kids in literature and in both of these books both Will and Ghost you when you're reading them and they're genuinely angry but you also absolutely understand why they're angry and it's not the case that they're angry in one particular scene and then it's resolved these kids are kids that have got anger in them but it's also completely logical as to why and it is laid out exactly why they are the way they are and I've realized I've never really seen that in books before Hmm. I think that so it's really important to me that we do a better job at discussing anger and, you know, it's funny, right, because not only do we not discuss anger with young people, we don't discuss anger, period. Like, we just have a hard time. And when I say we, I mean the collective we. I, I literally mean that every almost every dominant culture, quote-unquote dominant culture, every superpower, every major uh, global economy, like all of us, we really struggle with honest conversations around what it means to feel anger as if anger is a shameful emotion, as if it isn't a part of our humanity. And I think there are young people who have anger, and because we don't know how how to unpack it, we don't help them unpack it, and therefore it shows itself in ways that lands them in unfortunate situations and scenarios that we then chastise them for being in, right? We, it, it's, a, it's the strangest thing to me, and, and as a young person who's felt that anger and who's had reason to feel that anger, 
it is incumbent upon me to write stories that are honest, that show young people coping and grappling with a natural human emotion beyond the feeling of romantic love. Mm-hmm. We have no problem writing love stories. So-and-so has a crush on so-and-so, and then it's, it's all about, like, ships, right? There's all this concept of, like, oh, ships. Right? Who would you want to ship? Right? Friendships <laughs> and relationships. And, uh. But we never talk about, like, this idea that there's, as Ghost says, there's so much scream in me. Yeah. Right, and and that you could have both of those things simultaneously, and fear and uncertainty. That our young people can be shown as whole. That's it. That's it. And so I, I I'm, I'm glad you brought up Will, and I'm glad you brought up Ghost and their anger, only because it does not make them half people. It does not. The tail is not wagging the dog. Their anger isn't something that is driving them per se, but it is a part um, of who they are, and it informs their decision making. Yeah. And is that how, when you're writing, the drive behind you writing, particularly for young adults? Mm. I mean, I actually, you wrote a novelization of a Miles Morales Spider-Man mm. comic. And I saw an interview with you where you were saying you weren't really that tempted by doing Miles Morales or Spider-Man. And then someone said, oh, well, he's an Afro-Latino yeah. Spider-Man. And that's when you said, actually, I'm kind of interested in this. Absolutely. Is it about showing younger readers that there's both the opportunity to be a superhero, to be the author that writes that superhero. Are they things that you're actually aware of while yes. you're writing? Yes, it, it's all about all those things. I, I am. There's no way for me to ignore the fact that who I am is a part of it all. Yeah. Right. And I choose to be face forward because of that. Right. So I'm going to write my. I wrote Miles Morales because I knew what it meant. One, I knew that I wanted to be in control of whatever that story became mm-hmm. uh, because it was not me, it's somebody else. And number two, it's because I wanted to make sure that when they saw me, they saw me. They saw that it basically Miles Morales wrote Miles Morales, right? And that that was important, that a kid that looks like the kid in this book, that a kid that lived in the neighborhood that Miles is living in, a kid that, that, that talks to his friends the way that Miles talks to his friends, talks to his mom the way, right? Very sort of real and tangible things. I think that was sort of the game changer. And the other thing is that I asked Marvel, like, I'll do this, but I need to be able to do whatever it is I want. I want to tell the story that I want. Right. You got to let me sort of express myself and let me give the cultural textures that I think this character really, really, really needs. Because if you want me to write a story and not tap into the parts of him that are black or that are Puerto Rican, then it's a waste of my time. Mm-hmm. It's a waste of my time. Um, and, and that's sort of the way that, I, that that's the way I approach it. That's the way I approach everything. Mm-hmm. You know, Ghost, Long Way Down, all of them, you know, and I, just black language. Because all of it's in all of the books that I write. I think of it like jazz. Right. Mm-hmm. It's just jazz. And, and And what I mean by that is, you know. When, when Bebop came into play, right, so Gillespie and all those guys are like, yo, we're going to take the sort of Louis Armstrong thing or the Duke Ellington thing and Cap Callan, and we're going we're gonna to do a different kind of jazz. We're going to make a different kind of jazz music, and it's going to be experimental, and it's going to be loud, and it's going to be all over the place, but we'll understand it, but it's going to be everywhere. The reason that they started that music is because they were tired of white musicians stealing jazz music, making it their own, and leaving their names off the records. So what they say is, you know what? We're going to do something that they can't do, that they can't replicate. We're going to make it so complicated and so indigenous to who we are that it's impossible for them to tap into it and copy it and take it from us. They'll have to appreciate it as it is, as viewers, but not as participants. Mm -hmm. That's how I feel about all of these things. I feel the same way about the literature that I make. I want to write literature in in a way that feels so authentic and that feels so um, jazz-like that... If you aren't of this culture, you can appreciate it and and exist in the world of the story, but you cannot replicate it. And do you think then 
with all the kids that you speak to and you show them your books and they read your books and then perhaps acquire a taste for reading, perhaps acquire a taste for writing. Do you think then that we're on a sort of precipice then before the next generation of writers come in and it's going to be a completely different oh, yes. field? Yes, 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 yes. I mean, that's look, there's nothing I want more than for young people to read these books and feel freedom through literature, right? Not the constraints of writing, right? I think right now so many young people don't like to write because they feel bogged down. It feels like it feels like a weight, right? It feels like too much pressure to figure out how to put words on a page that follow all the rules. Hopefully when they read mine they say, "Oh, clearly there are no rules." Right? Clearly you don't even have to write in complete sentences if it's creative writing, right? Most of my most of Ghost is in fragments. Mm-hmm. Like he speaks, I mean, he speaks fragmented, right? Most of Long Way Down is in fragments, right? Or or in run-ons or whatever I feel in my gut is the right thing to do. And if young people can read it and say, "Yo, this really just is, it feels good to me." So maybe I can write something that feels good to me. And I think that's the ultimate goal. This is not for me. I could listen. My life is, I'm all right. I've built a life for myself. I'll be all right regardless. But you can't be a king if you can't be a kingmaker. <laughs> right? That's the way it works. You can't be a king if you're not a kingmaker. My job is to make writers. My job is to influence writers and readers. And if I don't do that, if it's all said and done and nobody that, I, that has read these books decides that they want to give it a shot, then... You know, I'm not so sure that that's successful, honestly. You know? Yeah, I, I honestly also think that that's probably not going to be the case. Yeah, we'll see. <laughs> Ghosts and all the rest of the run series is published by Knights of. Listening to that interview, it strikes me that the way Reynolds writes about young people is very different to the way Salinger was writing about them in the 40s and 50s. Do you think that's part of a wider shift, Sean? Well, I suppose... At this point, we've got pretty defined ideas about brackets. So we've got, you know, children, we've got tweens, we've got teens, uh, we've got young adults, I don't know. So we've got all these sort of set divisions. We have sort of ideas about how each of those behave. Whereas when, when Salinger was writing, I suppose it was the point at which teenagers were really kind of being considered to be their own thing. And so it's interesting that with Catcher in the Rye, how timeless it is, because he did capture some sort of truth about what teenagers are like and it's sort of a universal truth and it's interesting that while Jason Reynolds does a lot of writing that rings true to me in that his kids are often uh, frequently quite amoral and they just sort of do stuff because they have an impulse to do it and they don't understand why and you can they don't really understand why adults around them have the reactions that they do while that all feels very true he's also writing for a very specific reason and part of that I think is a very necessary drive that he feels that there are certain stories that need to be told. And telling them for younger people as well I mean Salinger was writing for grown-ups reading about younger people. Yeah. Jason Reynolds it seems to me is writing for the kids. Yeah I think that's probably it too that perhaps there is a sort of uh, a firmer idea of of children's literature that of writing specifically for a a child audience. You know there's someone someone came up with this term uh, Joanna Rakoff uh, she uh, wrote a memoir called My Salinger Year which was basically when she was working as his sort of editorial assistant at a um, a big sort of literary agency in New York and she uh, said she coined the term the Salinger moment and she said it's basically the 
point at which between either 12 and 20 that you have when you read Catcher in the Rye for the first time. Everyone reads it between about 12 and 20 and they feel recognised <laughs> by it. But now there's a whole kind of marketing category addressed exactly to exactly, those people. Exactly, you know, there's a massive, I mean, children's literature is a massive market all around the world. Particularly in the UK though, it's, it's amazing um, just how many uh, children's books sell. So I suppose really Jason is sort of doing something um, that works because of the industry that has been built around children's literature it sort of is it is universal but it also allows i think for a certain amount of sort of niche appeal um which is really in in his benefit because he does it so well and he's right there's not enough people writing about minority kids and so he's doing it for him basically yeah all thanks to harry potter all yeah. hail jk rowling <laughs> yeah <laughs> always thanks to harry potter i thank harry potter every day of my life Next week, have you ever read a book that was so shocking you struggled to finish it? Our very own Alison Flood did, and she faced her fears by speaking with the author Alice Clark Platts about her terrifying thriller, The Flower Girls. What pushed hardcore thriller lover Alison over the edge? Well, I can't say that I relish shocking literature, probably the understatement of the year, but I do relish working here with you folks at The Guardian. Which reminds me, this episode of The Books Podcast was sponsored by Guardian Jobs. They can help you find good company and organisations with like-minded individuals, just like these. Find your good company at gu.com slash goodcompany. And do subscribe and review us wherever you get your podcasts. And join the discussion on Twitter, at Guardian Books, or by leaving a comment on the podcast page. So from me, Richard Lee. And me, Sean Kane. And our producer, Susanna Tresillian. Thanks for listening and goodbye. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts.